1: I'm Wes Kosova. Today, China's economy comes roaring back.
0: They chant Xi Jinping Step Down, an extraordinary show of defiance in China. In Shanghai, they chant for freedom, democracy, and end to COVID
1: lockdowns.
0: There's been mixed signals, but now clearly because Hangzhou, Shanghai, Beijing, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, Zhengzhou, iPhone City, and many more are all starting to loosen their COVID restrictions, including relaxing some of those
1: PCR test requirements. What a difference a month or so makes. At the start of December, China was still in COVID-0 lockdown. And as you heard there, people were fed up with being stuck indoors. Now, in part because of those protests, the government has significantly eased COVID restrictions. China's people are going out and getting back to work. And that means its economy is starting to rev back up too. China's reopening will be felt around the world as travel picks up and the nation resumes buying products of all kinds. But that economic boost potentially also comes with a big catch. Bloomberg's chief economist Tom Orlick in Washington and chief Asia economics correspondent Enda Curran in Hong Kong are here with me now to explain. Tom, you and Enda and several of our Bloomberg colleagues have written a story that explains how China's reopening will be felt around the world. Why was the COVID zero policy such a big deal for China's economy and really the global economy? So...
2: Covid zero is widely presented as a serious policy error by Beijing. In fact, it's brought some pretty significant positives. Yes, the impact of Covid sweeping across the country was delayed rather than entirely prevented, but that period where China was locked down initially the entire country and then rolling lockdowns across cities to try and keep infections as close to zero as possible, it had an important benefit for public health. It allowed time for vaccines to go into arms not as many vaccines as the epidemiologists would have liked, but certainly a lot of vaccines went into arms. And it also allowed time for COVID itself to diminish in lethality. And what that hopefully means is that now China's opened up from COVID zero, the public health cost, the sicknesses, the deaths are gonna be less, much less than they would have been if China had allowed COVID to sweep across the population right at the beginning of 2020, as occurred in the United States and lots of European countries. There were some public health benefits, there were some really serious economic costs. When you lock an economy down, it's inevitable that you're going to suffer. Workers can't go to their factories or their offices, Households can't go to the shops. And what that means is you have a big negative impact on growth. So a Chinese economy, which went into COVID, growing at around 6% a year, last year grew just
1: 3%. And end of that slowdown in China's economy affected not just what Tom is describing, which is domestic economy, but what China was buying and selling to the rest of the world.
3: Yeah, I would add to what Tom said there in that China's COVID-0 also hugely benefited the nation's factories during 2020 and 2021 in that when the rest of the world was having problems keeping its supply lines running and keeping its factories and stores staffed, China was able to produce everything that the rest of the world wanted and cashed in on this extraordinary boom for buying merchandise goods. Around the rest of the world so the, the COVID zero policy is credited with allowing china's manufacturing base to continue more or less uninterrupted so that was another economic plus but you know as tom was saying there ultimately it was unsustainable the spillover from that slowdown in china meant there were no chinese tourists going overseas uh, there were no chinese students going overseas the exchange of know-how and two-way people flow between china the world's uh, second largest economy and other major trading partners wasn't happening there was a whole series of hindrances whereby China went from being typically the global growth driver of the world economy to slipping down the ranks a little bit. And I think last year, there was a lot of focus on the U.S. picking up the growth pattern as China slipped back. So there were clear benefits early on. And I would say the merchandise trade boom was one of them. But then the benefits, the economic benefits became kind of diminishing returns as time went on.
1: You mentioned tourism and a couple of other things. What are other Economic effects of China just not participating as vigorously in the world economy as they did before COVID.
3: Well, there was the, as you mentioned, there was the basic services trade effect, the impact on those tourist-rich economies, especially in Southeast Asia, the likes of Australia and elsewhere. Not just tourists, but also students—they were losing out on the big China dollar spend that was a feature of pre-COVID China. But I think also there was a human side to it, by the way, in terms of. Business people in chambers of commerce in China itself uh, were speaking out loud against COVID-0. That was something very unusual. Normally, companies don't really speak out against a host government per se, um, but they they were critical of it just because they couldn't get staff in. They couldn't have those exchanges with their colleagues. They couldn't do all the rudimentary kind of business travel that's needed to keep the flow of global commerce and trade ticking over. So as I say, there's the obvious spillover in industrial sectors like, or in sectors such as services and so on but also there was a human side to the impact of COVID zero.
2: And it wasn't just COVID zero. China's policymakers, because they were so successful in containing the virus in the first part of 2020, succumbed to an unfortunate bite of hubris. They decided, we contained COVID, we can do a bunch of other stuff as well. So in the second half of 2020, you had a sweeping shift in policy on the property sector, something which is referred to as the three red lines policy, cutting off sources of finance for real estate developers. That really hammered the investment, which is a big driver of China's growth. And you had the common prosperity agenda an attempt by Xi Jinping to engineer a more equitable Chinese economy by smacking down what he sees as the excess power of the tech monopolists, Jack Ma and Alibaba, Pony Ma at Tencent, and other similar entrepreneurs. And those forces together, they really dealt a really serious blow to China's growth. And as Enter said, From the perspective of global businesses, they really changed the view on China to pretty unbridled optimism, to quite a lot of pessimism.
1: China's economy seems about to open back up in a big way. So what does that look like for China's economy? So
2: in fact, Wes, you're completely right. The COVID zero policy has shifted, but in fact, all of the policies which I just mentioned have shifted. So at the end of last year, we had an extraordinary wave of protests across major Chinese cities, frustration, at years of lockdowns bubbling up. And that seems to have catalyzed a big move in Beijing. And they moved away from COVID zero a lot quicker than most people were expecting. At the same time, we've had a wave of support for the property sector, the financing taps for developers have been turned on a little bit, mortgages are now more available for home buyers, so prospects for property are a little bit stronger. And the common prosperity agenda, that crackdown on entrepreneurs, um, that isn't Quite so in evidence either. So there's been a big policy shift away from containing the virus and achieving desirable long term objectives like containing the property bubble and achieving more equity and income distribution towards all out support for growth. And what that means is that prospects for China this year are looking quite a lot stronger. I mentioned that China's economy expanded just 3% this year, if you put together the exit from COVID zero, the shift on property, the shift on the policy on tech entrepreneurs, our forecast is that China this year will grow 5.8%. And in an upside scenario where everything goes right for Beijing, they could do even better than that.
1: Tom and Enda, please stick around. Our conversation will continue after the break. And uh, as we heard Tom say just a minute ago, COVID zero ending and China opening up means that its economy could grow much more quickly this year. What are the industries that will open up first? And what kind of effect is this going to have on the rest of the world?
3: So the IMF have said it's the single most important thing for the global economy, this year, it has been seen as a game changer for the global recession debate, for example. Whereas the most obvious areas are number one commodities. Like Tom said, if China's economy gets humming again, not just because of COVID zero, but because of the housing sector picking up, uh, look for imports of iron ore and copper to pick up. Copper prices already rallying back above $9,000 a ton. The Chilean peso rallying on one of the China reopening bets. Because Chile is such a big producer of copper. Indeed. So the whole commodities raw materials input story is there then of course we're back to the services story which is well understood but specifically there you're talking about demand for airline tickets demand for hotel rooms around the world demand for tourism resorts you had the thai government senior officials out greeting chinese tourists with garlands when the first plane arrived in Xiamen on january 9th
1: And camera crews were actually there at the airport to capture the moment. The news network France 24 talked to some Chinese tourists who were arriving on the flight.
3: We are very excited to come back to Thailand. We are waiting for three years already. Before the COVID, we come here every year. And this time I take my family to come here. So... There is going to be significant spillover and i think asia will be on the front line of the tourism impact but so will major developed economies like the uk and japan the us i guess might be less clear given the political tensions but i would say commodities will be channel number one for the spillover services will be channel number two and the other impact would probably will be in financial markets just lifting global sentiment and we're already seeing money return to china for the first time in a while
2: I think we're also going to see the Chinese shoppers hitting the high street again, right? I don't think there's quite the same pent-up saving story in China uh, that there was in the United States in the back end of 2020 and 2021. China didn't go quite so far in terms of stimulus, there weren't checks going out and padding people's bank accounts. Um And I think Chinese households are also going to be kind of a bit cautious because they do see some headwinds still coming in the medium term, right? They see there's still problems in the property sector, for example. Still, if you've been stuck at home or fearing being stuck at home for the best part of three years and you've got some extra funds in your bank account, when the economy reopens again, I think there's going to be a sort of a temptation to hit the shops. So that's going to be good news for the big chinese brands Um, it's going to be big news for the big multinational brands that sell in china apple are going to be seeing more foot traffic at their stores mcdonald's are going to be seeing more people popping in for a burger
3: and of course the fact that foreign business people can now travel in and out to see their staff and see their companies that's an important part of the whole foreign investment framework because last year executives were at their wits end and we're looking or talking about alternatives to china we should say though Wes, at this point let's not forget the public health crisis because the lack of transparency around the total caseload and the total uh, fatality rate means there's an unknown quantity with the covid outbreak in china by extension it's not yet known how that will fully impact consumer confidence or how long it might take consumer confidence to return from that the whole kind of bullish reopening China story is out there. It's probably the biggest talking point, certainly in this part of the world. But there is a caveat in terms of we don't yet know how this crisis will play out and what the long-term lasting impact on consumer confidence might be.
2: I'm curious, Enda, Um sitting in Hong Kong, how long do you think this kind of painful period where the infections are sweeping the country is going to last. How long do you think it's going to be before we're back to something which looks like a kind of post-pandemic normal? End of the first quarter, into the second quarter?
3: Well, we'll have just have gotten over Lunar New Year. And of course, that will mean in all likelihood, the infection rate will have spread across regional and rural China. So all of China will be feeling the brunt of this outbreak. Hong Kong is interesting that we also had COVID zero up until um, maybe at some point last year when the authorities then pivoted and many said Hong Kong was a was a guinea pig for broader China it's taken Hong Kong some time to recover confidence from the draconian measures that we were under still isn't back to where it was retail spending still isn't back to where it was tourists are not yet returning the way they were um, is not a mirror image of what's happening in China but there might be some elements of caution there for the consumer rebound
1: Tom, as Enda said, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, says that China's reopening is the biggest story of the year and how all of this money is going to be unleashed in China and around the world. Is there a way of measuring what the economic impact of that will be?
2: So China's the second biggest economy in the world. And if you take a kind of difference in purchasing power across economies— it's actually the biggest. So when an economy of that size goes from 3% growth to probably something close to 6% growth, that has a big global impact. Now. As Ender mentioned, it's going to be most visible for China's neighbors in Asia, countries that are caught up in the same manufacturing supply chains, countries that benefit from the arrival of Chinese tourists, Chinese business people. But it's going to be an impact which ripples around the world. Our estimates suggest that the difference between a China growing at 3% and a China growing at 6% is around 0.5 percentage points on global growth. A different way of thinking about it is the equivalent of adding an economy the size of Nigeria to the global economy.
1: Our conversation continues after the break. Tom, as you and Enda and our colleagues write in your story, all of this money unleashed into the world economy, which is a good thing, also comes with a big catch. The last time we talked in November about the possibility of continued inflation around the world, you said, wait till next year when China reopens, we could then really see what inflation can do. And here we are talking about that. What is the big catch?
2: So it's funny, Wes. Um, If we spin the calendar all the way back to 2008, to the dark days of the global financial crisis, um, China played a really important role in getting the global economy going again. China's 4 trillion yuan stimulus launched at the end of 2008 unleashed a wave of demand at exactly the moment the rest of the world was in a slump and needed that kick to get going again. In 2022, China helped out the rest of the world again, but this time, not by adding to global demand, but rather by taking away from it. By staying locked down, by taking a big hit to growth at home, China subtracted from global demand and with the rest of the world grappling with really, really high inflation, that was actually an important contribution If China had been booming in 2022, inflation in the United States and in Europe would have been even higher than it was.
1: Because China buys so much, and if it were sucking up so much of the world's resources at a time when everyone was looking for it, that prices would have been driven even higher?
2: Exactly. Now, 2023 is meant to be the year where the US Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank and all the other big central banks start to get inflation under control. So inflation is probably going to fall from about 10% in the third quarter of last year to about 3% at the end of this year. China's reopening has now introduced a wild card into that process. The Chinese buyer is back. That's positive for oil prices. It's positive for agricultural commodity prices. It's positive for exports across all of China's trade partners. And the risk is that adds a new impulse to inflation just when the Fed and others hope to be getting it back towards their target.
1: And what are some examples of how China opening up and starting to buy, buy, buy again will have this inflationary effect on the global economy
3: well one area to keep an eye on is the price of oil china is the world's biggest importer of oil and last year its demand was the weakest since 1990 according to the international energy agency so there's a feeling that if china comes back on the oil market in a material way that's an obvious channel where you could see china's return and interestingly policymakers are keeping an eye on that for example south korea's central bank governor recently made the point that China's reopening will be a good thing because it means they will buy more South Korean goods. But he also said he's worried about the impact it will have, for example, on the price of oil, which will, of course, ultimately mean higher inflation for South Korea, another one of the world's economies where interest rates are going up. So I think that's one factor to keep an eye on. Now, within that, there are variables. And of course, the energy experts can drill into it further. But the role of Russia in supplying perhaps cheaper oil to China could take the edge off some of that story. But I would certainly in terms of when it comes to channels and when you want to look at charts and say, how do we gauge China's reopening impact on the rest of the world? Keep an eye on the price of energy.
2: A couple of thoughts to add to that. Firstly, if you look at a chart of China's oil imports, it is on a very, very steady rising trend for many, many years up to the start of 2020. And at the beginning of 2020, when COVID hits and China locks down, China's oil imports flatline. And for the last three years, they haven't grown at all. So I think that the idea with the reopening, 1.4 billion people getting back in their cars, getting back on their trains, getting back on airplanes for international travel, now the borders open, is going to drive more demand for oil. I think that idea is pretty well founded in the data. And then the second thought, just to build on Ender's remarks is, It's not just the Korean central bank governor who's got his eyes on this. We had a speech by Lael Brainard, the vice chair of the US Federal Reserve uh, in January, where she flagged China reopening and what that means for commodities as a risk that she's looking at. We had the European central bank's Christine Lagarde in Davos raising the same concerns. This is something which is a live issue, which is very much on the radar of the world's top monetary policy makers.
1: Since this is such a pressing concern, have these leaders come up with ways to offset the harmful inflationary effects that you're describing?
2: I'm afraid it's the blunt instrument of interest rates again, Wes. The hope for many in the financial markets, the hope for uh, households looking to borrow money to buy a house, uh, the hope for businesses that need to borrow to finance their operations, uh, is that the end of the rate hike cycle uh, from the Fed and other central banks is coming into sight. And that's the baseline forecast from most economists. Um, Most economists think the Fed and the ECB have got a couple more rate hikes to come, And then it's gonna be not quite mission accomplished, but we've done enough. Let's let these rate hikes do their work and inflation's gonna start coming back towards target. But if China reopening gives a big boost to global growth, pushes commodity prices onto a sharply rising trajectory, we could find that come the second quarter, the Fed and the ECB need to do a little bit more and they're not done with rate hikes quite as soon as the markets and businesses and home buyers hope they are.
3: If I could extend that a little bit, Wes, it could also be that the moment when central banks start to bring down borrowing costs gets pushed out further. So as Tom mentioned, this year is meant to be the year when central banks at least pause pushing up rate hikes because inflation is supposed to come under control. But the danger and and the expectation then was that maybe later in the year, some of these central banks could start to bring down borrowing costs because they're comfortable, inflation's under control. Let's give the economy some support again. But the China factor means that the ability to bring down or to cut rates may not be there. It's just another complication in the inflation story. And it will be a big call for central banks to reach a point where they're comfortable that inflation is back where they want it to be.
1: And given all that we've been talking about here, Do you think then that China's reopening is a net negative or a net positive for the global economy?
2: I mean, I think you've got to think first of all about the human story, right? 1.4 billion people locked down, fearing lockdowns, that mercifully has now come to an end, right? Uh, And I think that's sort of the primary lens uh, through which we think about China exiting from lockdown. When it comes to the global economy, I think one way to think about it is who's going to benefit and who's going to lose out from the reopening. So if you're sitting in Saudi Arabia, remember President Xi of China uh, just made a trip to Saudi Arabia uh, to meet the leaders there you're looking at China's households getting back in their cars and on the bus and on the train, and you're looking at your oil revenue and you're pretty happy about it. If you're in Brazil or Australia, thinking about how much iron ore you're gonna sell, you're pretty happy about it. Um, If you're in Thailand, as Ender mentioned, you've gone to the airport with your garlands to hang around the first Chinese visitors arriving, right? Uh, So there are countries around the world that are really significant beneficiaries of China reopening. The inflation cost that's gonna be something that's borne by everybody.
3: Yeah, I would just add that it has added to a big shift in tone towards the world economy this year was Only a few weeks ago, it was all about Western Europe's energy crisis, China's COVID zero, risk of a global recession, which is something very unusual in itself. And here we are now uh, approaching February and that story has changed dramatically. Nobody's calling a dramatic rebound, I think for global growth per se, but certainly the talk of a global recession is much diminished. And so much of that is down to China's reopening.
1: Enda Curran, Tom Orlick, thanks so much for joining me today.
3: Great to be here, Wes. Thank you, Wes.
1: You can read more from Tom Orlick and Enda Curran at Bloomberg.com. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Vergolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Our producers are Michael Folero and Mo Barrow. Hilda Garcia is our engineer. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another big take.
0: You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through.